Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravlick and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Uh, today's the day when there's a Melbourne Cup field of you know, analysis from the banking sector uh, from every uh, everybody literally uh, looking at the financial services sector and its progress to during the past 12 months in the COVID space. There's a lot of uh, issues that the banking sector has faced, including periods when people were given time to not have to pay their loans because of uh, a lack of income coming through the front door and a range of other things. And to talk about the EY perspective of the actual past six months in the banking sector, I've got EY Oceania Banking and Capital Markets Leader Tim Dring with me today. We'll go through some of the key indicators, but also touch on some of the compliance issues for the banks that uh, that have existed in the past 12 months. Tim, thank you for joining me again. Uh, great to be with you, Tom. Now, if we look at the, the some of the key areas that you've uh, you, you've focused on in the report, it's a, you say there are $3.8 billion in combined headline cash earnings across the key banks, across the four major banks, $5.3 billion uh, from, two, from 2020 half-year results. That's an increase of 62%. Um, yeah. Take me through what contributed to that. Yeah, sure. Look, it's not a bad, uh, it's, it's not a bad outcome, Tom. We're sitting here almost 12 months on you like um, from when the banks released their half-year results at uh, for 31 um, you know based on the 31 March half-year for most of them will be at CBA reported earlier at 31 December but you know an increase of 62 percent is a pretty strong result given the uncertainty that was uh, you know on our doorsteps 12 months ago and that's driven by I think a few fundamental things that have driven that one is when we look at how much the banks put aside 12 months ago for potential credit impairments. And most of that was around the collective provision. So the forward-looking provision, if you like, Tom. Um, and collectively, they put they put on their balance sheet and through their profit and loss statement, 5.7 billion. Now, that was based on, I'll call it best case, worst case, and the base case of a number of economic assumptions that may play out. And back then, I think we were talking around COVID, you know, was it going to be a, a quick recovery? Was it going to be a U-shape? Was it going to be a W? All of those sorts of predictions. So no one really knew. But what they'd sort of built into that provisioning was pretty pessimistic outlook on unemployment. Um, you know, base case might have been, a, a you know, and, and worst case, somewhere around 10% unemployment levels over the next two to three years. There was also a situation of GDP growth that was um, forecasted to be a lot lower than where we're at at the moment. And um, house prices in particular, as you know, given the, the focus on, on housing, that underpins a big part of the balance sheet and collateral of the major banks, uh, was predicted to fall. So we sit here 12 months on going, actually, a lot of those factors haven't played out like they thought they would have, hence why the banks have started to release some of those provisions they put aside. Um, and in aggregate terms, right across the four banks, and, and even CBA is included in that mix as well, um, and it'd be interesting, you know, what their result is when they report their year-end results at June, but we actually had a combined write-back 
of just over $100 million. Um, as I said, conversely, against the $5.7 billion that went through the PL. So that's been one of the major factors that's increased cash earnings. The other one, too, is, uh, is loan growth. And it probably, uh, you know, a lot of the bank, major banks are tracking uh, at or, or below system. And system has been around, sort of running at about 3%. Uh, but they are, you know, there is modest loan growth uh, coming through. And perhaps the pipeline looks even more promising for the major banks with the applications that are in the pipeline. So that's the other side. Um, margins have held up reasonably well, albeit they have, you know, fallen... Uh, again, compared to this time last year by about six basis points. Um, but over the last few months, we've seen margins starting to pick up as um, products have been repriced. But, you know, for the banks, the cost of funds at the moment is very low. And um, it probably, uh, you know, record lows for cost of funds. So uh, in a low rate environment, margins are compressed. But for the last 10 years, almost, we've had a gradual decline of, of net interest margins across the sector. So we are starting to come off the bottom. The other factor, probably the last one, Tom, that I think has assisted in this, um, this improvement in earnings is underlying costs. Um, now, operating costs for the major banks have fallen by 4.7% um, from the prior corresponding period. So, and also, you know, cost to income ratio is down uh, from 53.1% to 50%. So that, that's a really good news story. And that's off the back of, um, you know, different operating models. They've had to gear up with, with certain, um, an increase in, in labour costs and headcount to, to cope with the, the influx of new, um, new loan volumes. Um, but also at the same point in time, continue to invest in technology and automated processes to try and drive that cost down uh, even further in future periods. So, to me, those three factors have really underpinned the, the strong performance that really wrapped up this week. Um, one of the things that uh, comes through uh, in much of the coverage over the past 12 months is the, you know, the issue of what happens when you know, JobKeeper stops um, and some businesses um, regrettably fall flat on their face because they're not able to sustain themselves. Is that something that's been that has been raised with you uh, yeah, by it clients? Is. It's a big feature, um, Tom. If I look at, you know, when the deferral regime came into play, if I go back and, you know, the, the heights of those deferrals, and I'm talking small business and, and mortgages here, and residential mortgages, about 10% of the total loan book was on a deferred basis. Now we sit here um, 12 months on, that process has, has wound up. Um, banks have either had to have compensations to either you know, restructure those loans that aren't performing or, or alternatively move them into hardship. But the majority, when I say the majority, um, well in excess of 90% of, of, of those customers that were taking advantage of deferrals are now back making repayments again. So we're now left with only half a percent based on the last statistics that came out from APRA in May of this year, um, that only half a percent of, um, uh, of total loans have been, uh, have been deferred. So based on the February statistics. So that's, a, that's a, really good, a really good news story. And I think it's demonstrated um, 
APRA's ability to work with banks and, uh, and the bank's ability to, again, work with their customers. But there's no doubt there's some, there'll be some, there's some pain in that portfolio, Tom, and that's why I, you know, and I, you know, there has been a release of provisions, but there is still, I'd say, a, a cautious outlook still for some sectors, um, most notably, uh, you know, hospitality, um, travel and entertainment, transport, in particular aviation, due to, um, you know, not only um, Australian borders being closed, but, you know, the, the flux and reopening and closing of, of uh, our state borders too. Yeah, now one of the, a couple of things that might be useful to, um, to define for people, uh, because when we talk about bank results, we use some funky terms. Um, obviously, when we began our exploration of this, we used a phrase called, or we used the phrase combined headline cash earnings. Mm. Um, what does that mean to the person out there listening to this podcast? Because some of them, they might be familiar with the notion of a profit and a loss, but what does, what are combined headline cash earnings? So good question, Tom. And I think we have seen a convergence, if you like, between the cash earnings number and um, statutory profit. Um, the two are more coming in closely, closely aligned. And if I look at the results this year, um, we've got aggregated cash earnings of 13.7 billion versus against a statutory profit of 13.4 billion. So they're actually pretty close, and they haven't always been that close. And it's because the banks have wanted to strip out um, historically, I'll call it some of the non-cash items or the one-off items, whether it be some various write-downs that have occurred in uh, in portfolios or, or or IT systems, et cetera, that, that really don't affect the underlying cash earnings of the bank. They don't go through the cash flow statement but they are required to go through the, uh, the profit and loss. Hence, you do have this difference. But over time, those numbers um, have become closer and closer. And I think that's a, that's a trend we're not only seeing in the banking sector, but across most of the, uh, the other companies that do report um, cash earnings and statutory earnings, Tom. Is that because accounting has moved more uh, closely to focus on... Uh, I use the term loosely in this conversation, I know, but that are more of a market value focus? Yeah, look, I think that's right. And certainly ASIC, have, it's been an area of focus for them um, certainly a few years ago um, that, you know, in um, monitoring how companies report, they didn't want um, cash earnings to be more predominant than statutory earnings. So, um, as a result, you, you've seen this convergence and uh, it's always important when companies do report and you see this through their earnings announcements that they always uh, either start with statutory profit and reconcile to cash earnings or cash earnings reconciling to statutory profit, really to provide the users with more transparency. Historically, um, you know, analysts were really only interested in cash earnings and that's why... Um, uh, banks had, uh, you know, been that had been their bigger focus, but we've seen that that convergence, and and Essex uh, has really been the, the sort of watchdog and, and policeman on that one. Now, there's uh, a part of your commentary today that also focuses on 
um, prioritization of sustainability as an as an issue uh, where does that fit in with all of the all of the COVID-19 stuff and and, and uh, you know, the issues of uh, issues of metrics yeah it's a re that's another good point I think we are seeing um, shareholders customers um, be more in tune with the uh, you know the ESG agenda the, the environment and sustainability agenda Tom and as a result we've now got regulators um, very much focused on making sure that uh, regulated entities are being mindful and conscious of the risks of climate change not only on their business but also on the business of their customers and you know, we are starting to see the banks, uh, and you, you can even see it through the, the reporting information that's coming through this round, a far greater focus on ESG metrics, on what types of customers, um, you know, banks are, are banking uh, on both sides of their balance sheet. And um, just making sure that that, uh, you know, that that is reported with transparency and setting themselves some targets as well for their own carbon footprint, for their own business. Um, so, you know, you'll see a, a stance being taken around, um, you know, how much they, they will lend and, and their position on what they will lend and who they will lend it to, Tom. And I think that is, that is going to change. But it's also about educating customers and banks too that policy is changing in this space pretty quickly, and particularly in their institutional bank for some of their big global customers. Um, that are exposed to different jurisdictions, that the pace of change in government policy in this space is pretty fluid, so they do need to be attuned to it. We're also starting to see, you know, banks work with their customers and helping their customers navigate the ESG agenda and looking at what customers may be vulnerable and how a bank can actually help their customers navigate through that, that agenda as well. So there is a lot more reporting um, coming to bear, and I think it is... Um, it is a hot topic, and we've seen APRA now only recently release a, um, a prudential practice guide on this, Tom, and to really help institutions navigate the risks and provide clarity around the risks of climate change as well. One of the things that has happened, uh, Tim, as you would be aware, um, in that space, uh, that is sustainability and, and ESG and whatever have you, is not so long ago, the uh, global regulators have urged uh, the development of a single set of sustainability reporting standards. The yep. EIFRS Foundation has picked up the baton and run with it. They've now exposed the constitutional changes to the IFRS Foundation uh, constitution to get the institutional arrangements in place. Now, the main thing... I guess for people to focus on uh, is what might be the outcome of these processes globally. Um, are there things people should be thinking about as a as a new um, non-financial reporting suite of materials starts to develop? Yeah, look, um, it's, a, it's a pretty fluid area, Tom. You've touched on um, it's certainly evolving and. I guess what it is about transparency and um, in particular the exposures 
that organisations face to climate change. Now, not and partly it is, how does it affect the financial metrics of the institution going forward? Um, but, but also their reputation risks as well, Tom. And, you know, we're seeing customers and shareholders be very much attuned into these facts and therefore including information such as this in a consistent format in statutory financial statements is uh, it's just going to provide users with far greater um, transparency, if you like, to make better informed decisions. And particularly around institutional shareholders as well, we're certainly seeing um, the ESG agenda even widen further. We've had the, um, the International Institute of um, Institutional Shareholders come out the start of this year and say, look, they're now assessing cyber risk as part of their ESG agenda. So it's not just about environment and it is about sustainability and cyber risk is really caught up in that sustainability profile as well. That's also rather uh, an interesting point. Uh, there are other aspects of sustainability that are covered um, by that term and, and by ESG more generally. Um, just to wrap up, and I know I'm mindful of the time, Tim, and grateful you could join me today. Uh, we heard a lot about reporting challenges um, uh, during the COVID uh, period last year. We heard a lot about the need for people to uh, have some um, disclosure built around various estimates and assumptions and numbers, given the the uncertainty of that period. How do you think banks have coped with the with the reporting requirements over the past 12 months? Big challenge. Um, you know, if I look at their teams, in a sense, um, many of these uh, financial reports, you know, people are starting to return back to the office now, Tom. So that's, that's a good news, but that certainly hasn't been the case. Um, you know, the, the finance teams have been working from home, executive teams, the banks have been working from home, Auditors that audit these financial reports have also been working from home, so you know that has um, that, that has been one of the challenges. But I must admit, everyone has sort of risen up to those challenges, Tom, and I think worked through it. But perhaps on the metric side of things, that that level of uncertainty around where the economy is heading and how you know we've rebounded pretty quickly in this country. We've rebounded pretty quickly out of out of the um, you know perhaps what looked like a massive economic shock back in uh, March and April of last year, and then with the, the extended closures, border closures in Victoria, no one really knew how it was going to play out. So there was a lot of assumptions that went into forecasting what some of those credit losses may be in their collective provisions. Um, you know, as I said, this combination of uh, worst case, best case and base case, um, but no one really knew. I think what we are seeing, some of that information starting to come to light, but there is still this element of cautiousness. And we have seen some of the modelled outcomes um, for the collective provision come back, Tom, so they have been released. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've also seen perhaps some of those overlays that, um, that are used by management and boards to take account of things they just can't forecast that can't be built into a model. And some of that is the economic outlook. And look, 
We don't know when the borders, international borders of this country will open. We don't know when international travel will resume or foreign students or all of those other things that, that affect so many parts of our economy. Um, and there are some parts of the economy that are, are doing it pretty tough. Um, there's no doubt tourism and, and small business in certain sectors is doing it pretty tough. So as I said, that, that's where some of those overlays um, can provide some of that cushion going forward. And there's a lot of judgment in, um, in estimating that. Uh, is there any uh, thing that's coming down the, um, down the tunnel, if you like, coming up for, for banks to be wary of in terms of reporting that, that, that might be of interest? Um, probably nothing that really sort of jumps out on the agenda. There's a lot coming mm -hmm. down the pipeline on the prudential side. Tom, we've got um, um, CPS 234, which is around information security. Um, that, that is a big issue uh, as it sort of links very closely into to cyber. Um, that, uh, so that is at the forefront and, and that is something the regulators are really focusing on at the moment. ESG we've touched on. We've also got the Basel III reforms um, that, that will come in um, with various flaws around certain risk weights um, uh, for the major banks that are using uh, advanced models to uh, advanced accredited banks to, to predict uh, both operational risk losses and also credit losses. Um, there's a raft of regulatory change coming through, Tom, particularly in relation to uh, design and distribution obligations, um, the unfair contract in certain parts of their business. Uh -huh. um, then we've got changes to responsible lending that are, that are foreshadowed. Perhaps that's a loosening of some of the rules, um, but there is just so much, particularly, I mean, the compliance agenda, Tom, I'd probably say, I haven't seen a period where it's been as full as what it is at the moment. Um, hence why, um, you know, the big banks and, and a lot of large financial institutions and small financial institutions are having to really expand their compliance team and their risk teams um, to deal with these raft of changes and, and, and affect systems as well. Oh, Tim, that's, uh, that's actually uh, an interesting and sound prognosis for that part of the regulatory framework that banks have to play in. Look, it's been great to talk to you again, and thanks for giving us an update on where the financial services system is over the past six months. Hey, you're welcome. Great to chat with you again, Tom. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Thank you.